This podcast is brought to you by Premiere, the UK's leading Christian media organisation. As we approach the end of our financial year, we want to remind you that podcasts like this are only possible due to the generosity of supporters like you. You could help reach millions of people throughout the year through shows just like this. Make your best gift today at premierchristianradio.plus. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron, and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. You might think politics is tainted by compromise and sin, but of course you'd be right, but then again, so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. Today, we're going to be joined by Economic Secretary to the Treasury and MP for Salisbury, the Conservative, John Glenn. John has served in Parliament for 12 years and in that time has taken on several government positions. He'll be talking about how his faith impacts on his work in the high echelons of politics and what life is like inside the Treasury. But before that, this week, I wanted to talk about the government's plans to send refugees arriving in the UK to Rwanda. The first deportation flight is scheduled, of course, for this week. On this show, I do try to understand all sides of the argument. I don't believe, for example, in a migration free-for-all, there does need to be appropriate controls. But I can't avoid concluding that UK asylum policy is driven by a divisive assumption that refugees are aliens, that they're too numerous, that they come here to take what belongs to us. As Christians, we must seek God's heart on the issues. Let's search for the truth of the situation and not be scared by the rhetoric. For instance, the UK takes a relatively small number of the asylum seekers arriving in Europe. In 2021, per head of population, we took the 18th largest intake. France takes at least three times more refugees than we do, and Germany four times. More importantly, shouldn't we remember that refugees are human beings? They've been forced to leave their homes and seek a safe haven. Safety is a basic human need, and the Bible frequently reveals God's heart of compassion for the displaced and unsettled. Leviticus 19, amidst a raft of instructions relating to justice, says in verses 33 and 34, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. And then, of course, both Matthew and Luke record Jesus telling us to do to others as you would have them do to you. This is powerful and uncomfortable stuff. Last week, I visited Calais with a group of cross-party parliamentarians on a trip arranged by the Refugee Asylum and Migration Policy Project, of which I'm a member. There I met people whose stories would break the strongest of us. They'd escaped war and persecution, made a long and miserable journey, often via the lawless, dangerous state of Libya, crossing the Mediterranean and then through Europe to Calais. One young Sudanese man I spoke to would witness 42 of his companions die in the attempt to cross the Mediterranean. And once in Calais, well, their tents and sleeping bags are destroyed every couple of nights by the police. The possibility of being sent to Rwanda will not deter these people from attempting the last leg of that journey. I also fear that those wanting to come here because of family, linguistic, and cultural ties will simply try to get back again from Rwanda, thereby creating a more lucrative and far more dangerous market for the traffickers. So how do we stop those lethal boat journeys across the channel? 
Well, it seems obvious to me, if we provide safe routes to the UK, we will end the demand for dangerous ones. For those from Sudan, who were the majority we met in Calais, there is no safe route to the UK. Yet 95% of Sudanese asylum applications are granted refugee status here, indicating that they're not economic migrants, but refugees, genuine refugees requiring protection. Now, there are tens of thousands of Ukrainians seeking sanctuary in the UK, but I didn't see any Ukrainians sleeping rough in Calais waiting to take a dangerous boat journey over the channel. Why not? Well, because the United Kingdom has provided Ukrainians with a safe route to apply from mainland Europe for refuge here. It's not perfect, but it's safe. So there's your answer. We spoke to Calais' local Conservative MP, who was clear that there was support in France for refugees to claim asylum in the UK from centres in France. If the UK government picked up the phone to the French government, it could open a conversation that would end the smugglers' business model overnight, giving us that chance to treat refugees the way we would wish to be treated if we were in their position. As the people of Ukraine can testify, you never know when it could be you and your children. It would also be vastly cheaper than paying for private flights and accommodation to send people 4,000 miles away. But the government currently won't consider this option. And I'm afraid we can only conclude that it is pursuing current policy purely because it thinks it's a vote winner. As Christians, we have a responsibility to pray for wise leadership and a government that seeks just and proportionate solutions. This does not mean we should accept everyone who arrives on our shores, but we should certainly heed Jesus' warning in Matthew 25 to those he will send away on the last day. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. So to our guest this week, the Economic Secretary to the Treasury and Conservative MP for Salisbury, John Glenn. Welcome, John. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Well, thank you, Tim. It's great to be joining you this morning. Well, we'd like to start by asking you what we often ask our guests to start off with, which is about their journey to faith. You are a Christian. How did that happen? Well, I grew up in a wonderful home uh, in North Wiltshire, the other end of the county I now represent. A wonderful parent. Sadly, my father's not with us anymore. And they would probably have said they were Christians and we went to church occasionally, but I didn't really have what I would call a living faith until I went to university. Um, in my last year, I was challenged by a few friends, close friends, and I went along to a mission event at the church at St. Ebbs in Oxford. And uh, John Chapman gave us the challenge of who is Jesus and what are you going to do about it? And uh, that was a moment in February 96, just before I graduated, that I uh, would say I became a Christian. And then it's been a long journey over the last 26 years since then. Um, and uh, I, I had the privilege of first year, 96-7, working for two very great friends now, Gary Streeter and Michael Bates. I was working for the, the CARE, it was intern programme then, it was now graduate programme. And that really sort of fused my, my sort of faith and my passion for politics, which perhaps we'll come and talk about. Yeah, so you were for two um Great Christian politicians there in Michael and in Gary. Uh, your passion for politics, you're moving into the political world, which seemed to come yeah. pretty much straight after your time at university. Was that uh, something that was fueled by going through the care programme um, or was it something that came earlier? 
It came earlier, actually, Tim. When I was 10 or 11, I grew up on a glasshouse nursery. My father left school at 16, as my mum did. He was a hairdresser. Mm. And um, they basically, my dad came home one day and he said, you know, John, I just do not want you having to work in these greenhouses when you're older. You know, we're going to send you to a, there was a modest independent school nearby in Bath. And my life turned round then. But I was always interested in politics. And when I was about 11, um, my dad took me up to the House of Commons and I met my MP, uh, now Sir Richard Needham, who was the MP for Chippenham, then North Wiltshire. And it was as if a light went on. <laughs> mm. I walked into the uh, central lobby and he took me into the entranceway <laughs> to the House of Lords and put a jacket and a tie around me. And I, I then kept saying, you know, it probably sounded very precocious. One day I was going to be uh, an MP. Um, some people say at school, I went to a reunion recently, they said I was saying I was going to be prime minister. I think I've sort of just about given up on that one now. Um, but uh, so, so, so really through my school years, um, that was where I was focused. I always knew I'd do something else. And I had a sort of 12 year career um, at Accenture Anderson Consulting, where I worked for Caroline Spellman's husband, Mark. I was really mm. well taught through that. Um, and then and then politics opened up for me later. But I had a number of opportunities along the way. So the care programme I was made aware of literally the day after I became a Christian at, at Mansfield College in, in Oxford. And the, the chair of the Labour Club actually was a good friend in the year below me. And he said, well, there's this my godmother works for care. Um, why, why don't you apply for that? So things just sort of opened up. And then the wow. first day at Accenture Anderson Consulting, I met Mark Spellman and we set up a Bible study group together there. Um, and then I had the opportunity three years later through Mark for a secondment to work for William Hague. Um, then I went back and then I became deputy director of the research department, conservative research department and director. Then they sort of got rid of that. So I went back to Mark at Accenture and then I became an MP when I was just before I was, uh, well, when I was 36 in 2010. Well, now I, I, your backstory is fascinating, all of it. Um, as somebody who has briefly been a party leader, I'm particularly intrigued by the time <laughs> spent supporting William Hague when he was when he was leader and um and going yeah. up against tony blair and many <laughs> would say and i certainly would that william hay was really outstanding at prime minister's questions so how, how much of that was down to you john well of course <laughs> success has uh, no I, I i um i enjoyed working for william i was there for six months and i headed what's called the political section and i was mm. sort of scrabbling up down the stairs I didn't have the internet wasn't working quite in the same way then um, getting facts and figures for, uh, for, for for Prime Minister's question time. I mean, he was just a wonderful man to work for. He was very fair, very reasonable, very witty. Um, we were always up against it, obviously. Um, of course, Danny Finkelstein, Seb Coe, Nick Wood, uh, George Osborne was his political mm. secretary. So um, I observed quite a lot in, in those six, seven months. And I was also the candidate in Plymouth Devonport. So I, on Fridays, I used to go down there. So it worked quite well being seconded, um, uh, paid for by Anderson Consulting Accenture and then working as a candidate <laughs> at the end of the week. Um, but William was a was a great example to me. I continue to revere him, really look up to him. He's a, a wise man in, in politics and I'm glad that he's still you know, obviously contributing um, regularly yeah. to uh, debates. And, you know, he, you know, he, he's, he's, I wouldn't say he's a mentor to me, but he's somebody who I've always seen as somebody to you know, aim to emulate during the course of my career. Well, his book on Wilberforce is, uh, uh, is read in my office uh, regularly. He's a great author and um, uh, as well as, a, as you say, a wise man still to this day. And um, you're now the MP for Salisbury uh, and you have been since uh, 2010. Just tell us a little bit about how that came about. 
Well, I was getting pretty concerned. I'd gone for a few seats. Um, I was actually runner-up in um, uh, Tifton and Honiton in 2007, and a couple of others I came close. And, but I really wanted a seat in, in Wiltshire, and devices came up. Michael Ankrum retired, and uh, Claire Perry, who, who actually lived in the Salisbury constituency, got that one. And, and then Robert Key, at the very last minute, decided that he was going to step down. And I went for that. And when I was called up for an interview, there were 184 applicants. Six of us were interviewed. I thought, well, this is my chance. And I did mm. feel at peace about it. I don't think after the first round of interviews, I was out ahead and great candidates like Victoria Atkins and Jeremy Quinn were, were in the final five. And I remember vividly, we had an open primary in Salisbury Playhouse, 31st of uh, January, 2010, and about 10 past five, the chairman, who's now a good friend, Penny Brown, she came in and, and she said, we have a winner. And, uh, and it was me and I just, you know, just felt, tears welling up you know this was 25 mm. years of aspirations as a young boy walking into house of commons or house of uh, central lobby to actually getting selected in the seat i had a good prospect and very strong challenge as you'd expect uh, from the lib dems um but i, I won that seat tim and uh, you know I've, I've relished being a constituency mp first and foremost since then a mucky business with tim farron we're speaking with economic secretary to the treasury and conservative mp for salisbury John Glenn. Um, so, John, many of us in politics have faced attacks sometimes because of what we think and our opinions um, or something we've said or even a, a religious belief. How, how do you cope when those attacks come and do they do they come often? Well, I think my perception has changed over time. When I was a new MP, I used to take things very personally and really try and sort of deal with it. But as you mature, I think, as a politician, you realise that social media doesn't reflect normal um, uh, mainstream views, that there is a radicalised tendency on all sides. Um, and uh, though emails from constituents uh, can be very angry at times, that's my privilege to deal with that. I think we've seen a coarsening of the narrative in politics over the last decade. And I don't, you know, I think there's many reasons for that. I mean, I would say I'm a sort of mainstream moderate uh middle of the road conservative and i you know i try to be temperate in how i speak i won't always get things right um but i think sometimes arguments are oversimplified and debates are oversimplified which doesn't then help when it's projected into the public and so um it doesn't it does hurt occasionally it hurts when it's people you know who you know say things that you know you feel are, are odds with what they know about your character but mm. I think at the end of the day, politics can be a very um, sort of compelling driver for people and people feel and react very strongly to things they read in the news and often commentary that when I read it, I think, gosh, well, that's pretty ill-informed <laughs> mm -hmm. on occasion. And it drives more uh, radical thinking. So I think I've learned to become quite circumspect and just put up with it. I mean, I must say I've lost one or two members of staff, certainly one member of staff, five years ago, soon after the 2017 election. You're just reading the volume of unpleasant emails day after day, you know, just yeah. got to the point where she said, I can't take this anymore. Um, yeah. You know, the better thing. And I think that's very sad. And so I've probably learned now I've been a minister for, for five years. You know, I, my, my time is spent in different ways. I mean, I'm still very focused and have constituents emails on my phone and read them every day. But, you know, I, I've got other things to think about as well here in the Treasury mm. at the moment. 
Um, and so perhaps that sort of takes away and I don't have time to reflect in a, um, and take it so personally. I think to get to the very top in politics, which I'm not, um, you, you've got to be very thick skinned and you know, I've learned to develop some of that, but um, you know, as, as you will know through some of your experiences, Tim, it is, can be very unpleasant. And you know, I think you've got to then rely on your faith, your mm -hmm. family, and those who know you well to sustain you through those difficult times and difficult times will ebb and flow over a career. Yes. And do you think that when you do get attacks and, and we all get them, but clearly as a minister serving in a current government, those attacks are going to be yeah. more regular, I suspect. And uh, do you, when those attacks, if they and when they come, do they do they sting more if they are in any way related to what you believe as a Christian? Um, they can do, but then I think the point is, you know, if people don't have faith, that they don't acknowledge the centrality of the cross in mm. the sort of fundamental drivers of their life, mm. then why would they empathise with where you are coming from? I mean, I, obviously, when people say, how can you do this? And call yourself a Christian and mm. um, that's sad um, it's particularly sad when it comes from other Christians although mm. I found the more you have dialogue with people and the more you get to know people the more that they can begin to understand the complexity of some of the decisions that one has to make I mean obviously you know sometimes when we're working on things here in the treasury prior to an announcement you know the characterization is the press is an uncaring um, you know vicious mm. you know the government and, and you know whatever that's not the case there is just a lot of factors going into announcements and nothing happens quite as immediately as you would like but mm. um I, I think i've learned to you know take things on the chin and you know as i say if i was worried about what people were thinking about me um every day i wouldn't get on with my job and no. do it reasonably competently and my best every day i get up and as i walk in you know, I pray that God will give me the strength to make wise decisions and be competent in what I do. And, you know, and I just and Eric Pickles, who I was PPS for for three years, gave me some advice once. He said, treat every day in politics as a minister, particularly as if it's your last, because one day it will be. And so that's the approach I take when I get here early every weekday and, and think, well, you know, what can I do today? Because, you know, I won't be here forever. And I know that and you know I, I've just got to make my contribution as, as I've been given the opportunity. And something deeply theologically wise about that as well John I will bear that in mind also. <laughs> well that was in that was inadvertent. <laughs> yeah, still um, well you did allude to this uh, John but you are speaking to us from the treasury which is very exciting and um, obviously, it's the centre uh, of government life in many in many ways. Um, as you're driving the spending plans of government and all the big departments like health and education, home office and everything else, uh, only really does what it does because of the money that's available to it. Um, tell us a little bit what it's like being in the Treasury at the moment. You talk about the need to make wise decisions. We're facing this cost of living crisis, fears of a recession. What's like? like what is life like there at this current time? Well, one of the things about being a Treasury Minister is that people think you're responsible for everything. Now, my responsibilities as the Economic Secretary are for financial services. I do banks, bank regulation, I do green finance, I do um, all, the, all the things to do with financial services in all respects, and from premium bonds to our debt management office, and I do our own international relationships and dialogues with other countries. 
So it's an extremely busy role, but it takes you into access to cash. And when banks close, it takes you into credit unions and mutuals. It takes you into so many different areas. So I don't get involved directly in the day-to-day decisions about the allocation of money to departments, nor do I get involved in you know, some of the difficult decisions that the Chancellor has to make about you know, where to help people and where to change tax policy, which obviously works very closely with the financial secretary. So although corporately, and of course, after fiscal events, after budgets, you know, I go out there and back for the team. And, you know, that's what you'd expect. But it is it is true that the Treasury, um, obviously, uh, subservient to uh, the uh, prime minister in number 10, is responsible for making some of those big resource allocation decisions and big strategic decisions, having a very significant role in that. And obviously, financial services is 10 percent of the economy. We're going to later this year, put legislation before Parliament that's going to fundamentally change the way that that industry is regulated, uh, high standards, but within a different way now we're outside the institutional framework of the EU. And so there's a lot of fine judgments, there's a lot of conversations, there's a lot of you know, work, and it's incredibly um, demanding, but incredibly rewarding. You know, last week I had 48 hours in Switzerland, I had 14 meetings, I did a media interview, I did a speech, I got back to Salisbury at 10 to 12 on Thursday night, and next morning I was in my office having a surgery. I mm. love the challenges, the intensity of, of the, the job. I've been doing this job for four and a half years, which is you know, longer than anyone else has had the privilege of doing it. Mm. And um, you know that helps because now I've been around the block a few times, so I have good relationships with the sector, but I've got to keep challenging myself to keep renewing my thinking so I don't become complacent. And, um, you know, that's something that obviously, you know, working under my third chancellor now, I've, I've seen things come and go, I've seen elections come and go. I worked for Philip Hammond for a year as his PPS, and that was a great apprenticeship, and Philip's mm. a good friend. So I suppose what I'd say is you learn as time progresses, but I suppose at the moment this is a particularly tough time. What we're seeing in the economy with inflation, with the uh, challenges for the, for, for the cost of living, the challenge mm. of actually getting growth going in the economy – those are things that, you know, that there aren't simple things you can do, although it's always simplified when you, you know, read the commentary on it. But, uh, you know, we will, we will try to develop the right policies, obviously, and I will have my role to play in the formation of those policies as we get towards the next budget. Well, thanks, John. As we, as we move towards the end of our time together, I wonder yeah. if you might run through how we ought to be praying for you. You've got tough decisions to make. Um, the things that you and others at the Treasury do have an impact on millions of lives. Um, how, how would be the best way for us to pray for you in the coming days? Well, I thank you, Tim. I think the, the best way to pray would be that I would um, hopefully retain a sense of perspective, a sense of humility, but also have the wisdom and good judgment to make on very difficult policy areas where you know, there aren't easy choices sometimes and hopefully present it in a clear way that uh, expresses the motivations that the government has rather than sort of attend to. I, I, I love my constituency work mm. and I love the policy uh, and work of government. I find sometimes that the froth of politics in the middle um, is distracting from what really the purpose of what we do as politicians is about. Mm. And I, I suppose I, to pray that I would keep focused on what's really important. And um, also it's it's not about me, it's about the the cause and the and the challenges I'm asked to deal with. 
and I think that's important too. You know, we should have more politics that's about uh, thought, thoughtful debate around policy rather than some of the froth that sometimes engulfs the narratives around us as we as we live our lives in, in this uh, rather unusual career. Isn't it just? John, uh, been a real pleasure talking to you. Great, great wisdom there. I will not forget Eric Pickle's words to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, but we, we really wish you all the best with what you do. Uh, it's a, a wonderful thing that you are where you are. We're really grateful to you for spending time with us today. Thank you, Tim. Each week we give you the opportunity to ask us any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It might be about an aspect of this world that impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a political issue that you're struggling with and you'd like to make sense of it. Well, I'd love to hear from you and attempt to give it an answer. So please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Now this week, Emmanuel in London has been in touch and he asks the following. Tim, how much respect is there for the voice of Christians in Parliament? I know there are bishops who sit in the House of Lords, but all we ever hear is that people want to get rid of them. There's so much I could say to that one, Emmanuel. There are plenty of Christians in Parliament and in quite senior positions. I spoke to John Glenn today, of course, showing there are people uh, of faith high up in the Treasury. Um, so I think there are plenty of Christians across Parliament, and I think we're not treated as pariahs. I think we're sometimes seen as an oddity. Sometimes people view us with hostility. But by and large, I think we form a, a key part of our Parliament. In the House of Lords, it is quite different, as you suggest. Uh, we have members of the House of Lords who are bishops. Uh, really unusual to think there are people who are representatives and leaders of the church, the Church of England, sitting permanently in the House of Lords. Indeed, today, the bishops have signed a letter criticising the government uh, on Rwanda. I think lots of people will agree with the bishops. On this particular occasion, I do also, as it happens. I do think, though, that bishops in the House of Lords sometimes fall prey to the same temptation as we members of Parliament, and that is, we like to be popular. And I wonder if it wouldn't be an even better witness if bishops in the House of Lords didn't just always uh, say things that the public agreed with. Sometimes they need to challenge both government and the public, because when all said and done, Christianity is countercultural. It always will be. And those who are church leaders and in Parliament have a particular privilege and an opportunity to speak the gospel sometimes to an audience that doesn't want to hear it. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's join together in prayer at the end of our time together. Um, loving Heavenly Father, we pray for John Glenn and we thank you for his time with us. And we thank you for the position you have placed him in, in the Treasury. Uh, we pray for him that you would give him wisdom and good judgment, a wider perspective and real humility as he and his colleagues in government make big decisions affecting so many people, particularly over the cost of living crisis. We lift up to you every family, every person who is struggling through this time, deciding whether they can afford food or heating or fuel for their car, just to go about their daily lives. And we pray that people will turn to you at this really awful time. And we pray for John that you give him wisdom throughout it. But we also pray for people in government, in the Home Office, in Number 10, and indeed across our Parliament, uh, for good judgment, for wisdom and compassion over issues to do with asylum. Uh, that we might make decisions that are wise, that are godly, that are faithful, that are loving and compassionate. And Lord, we also finally lift up to you the people of Ukraine. Let us not forget their plight. Lord, we know you have not forgotten their plight. 
Do not forget the evil that is being done by Putin and those who are around him. And we just pray for justice. We know we can bank on justice from you in the eternal sense, but we pray for justice now. We dare to do that. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget that you can catch up on past episodes, which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash a mucky business. Thanks so much for joining me.